0: As the worshipers arrived on a late November morning at the Lutheran Church in White Lake, North Dakota, they were met by a rather disturbing sight. An apparently homeless beggar sat on the church steps, wearing tattered clothing, a stocking cap pulled down over his face, fingerless gloves clutching a bottle of wine. Most worshipers simply walked around the man. Others stepped over him as he sat there. Some muttered words of disapproval, and others suggested that the man move to another doorway before the Sunday school children arrived. One member told the man in no uncertain terms that the Salvation Army over in Minot would be the place to sleep it off. At one point, a a kind woman did show up with a styrofoam cup of hot coffee, but not one person asked the man to come in out of the cold. Not anyone asked him to come in and celebrate worship. So imagine then the people surprised during the entrance hymn when their homeless friend made his way into the church, came down the center aisle following the processing choir, managed to climb up into the chancel and make his way over to the pulpit. He began to take off his ragged coat, his stocking cap, and his fingerless gloves, and guess who it was? Their pastor. And the pastor remarked, I didn't do this to embarrass you or to poke you in the eye. I did it to remind us that this is a person that Jesus loves, and we are to love him too. Now, I know what you're all thinking. You've all heard the sermons on grace and mercy. You've heard God described as a loving and merciful king, slow to anger, willing to forgive sins or disobedience, and now you're wondering, okay, Dick, which is it? Is God going to grant us grace, or is he going to hold us in contempt of our sins? Do we have to earn our way into the kingdom of heaven, or will it be given to us as a gift of grace? And this story about the sheep and the goats is troubling, isn't it? It troubled the disciples a great deal. It bothered them. You see, it troubles us because all along we thought we were sheep, But what if we are the goats? Stakes are high, aren't they? And eternity lasts forever. Please take a look at this picture up on the screens now. This picture is part of our Monday morning study that Carol Miller and I, weekly I, she's doing most of the work, she's writing the lessons, um, have gathered from... Michael Belk's book, Journeys with the Messiah. You probably saw the promotions for it. Explore your faith through pictures. That picture says a lot if you look at it, and you can draw a lot from it. Jesus is inside the cell with the drunk or the addict. There's a well-dressed businessman sitting off to his left, kind of staring out into space like he's figuring, what am I? What am I going to do with this? How am I going to get out of here? And outside of the cell is a young man, maybe a pastor, maybe not, someone visiting, who apparently is holding a Bible. But Jesus is in the cell. I'm not here to promote Michael Belk's book. Michael is a fashion photographer by career. And at a late part in his career, he received a call from God to share his talents in spreading the gospel. He's taken first-century Jesus and put him in 21st-century scenarios. It's an exciting study. My sermon is scripturally based today. It's not based on Michael's book. But I can assure you that everything you've heard about God's grace is true. God does indeed stand ready to forgive us for our sins and every act of disobedience. No matter who you are, where you've been, who you've been with, and what you have done. That's the promise. But God also has expectations of how his people are to live their lives. I'm not going to stand here today and tell you how to live. I don't like that myself. But one thing we know. The saints, perhaps the sheep, will be generous. The saints will be kind. The saints will be filled with compassion. You see, it's what the saints do. Now, giving and doing does not make us saints. Giving and doing proves that we are saints. Generosity and kindness and compassion are part of the DNA of a Christian. So now the question that stands before us is this. What does our lifestyle say about us? And I'm not here to condemn us. What does your lifestyle say about you? What do you do? What do you give? According to Jesus' words, it seems to say this. We will recognize the sheep and the goats by the way they live their lives. When a goat sees an apparently homeless man sitting on the steps of the church, what do the goats see? They see a homeless man. When the sheep see an apparently homeless man sitting on the steps of a church, what do they see? They see Jesus. It's what the saints do. Not only are the poor always with us, as it says in Matthew 26, but so are the frail the challenged, the depressed, the aged, the troubled, the disenfranchised, the addicted. They're in our towns, they're in our neighborhoods, and yes, they're in our families. They come afflicted with every stripe and degree of pathology. About the time I think I've seen it all, I see something else. Last, Late yesterday afternoon, I came by the church. I was in the neighborhood, and if I'm in this direction, I always stop and I drive about the church. Uh, I got stuck, I got associated with the trustees, and I'm the pastoral rep for the trustees, and so if I'm responsible for buildings and grounds, I take that seriously, and I'll drive around the building, make sure there's not a door open, which I've seen, make sure that uh, doors are locked, that kind of thing. And I jumped out of, as I was coming down Cumberland, I noticed a middle-aged woman walking with a couple of bags in her hand, cloth bags. Uh, She was dressed rather poorly. She had a very tight and very high-cut pair of jean shorts on. She had a tank top on. It was rather chilly at that time of day, and she had a sweatshirt-type jacket that uh, had a hood on it. I noticed her. But then I came over to the church. And as I was checking doors number one, because we'd had a service done by a funeral service done by Phyllis yesterday, uh, so I came by to check the doors. and as I was doing that, I turned around to get back in my car, and there she stands. So for the next two and a half hours, till about eight o'clock last night, I found this, a place for this young lady to stay. We found her some clothes, took her to where her belongings were stored, even went and got sanitary pads, bought more clothes, did whatever she needed. She was stranded, she had no money, and she had a long tale of woe. Now something tells me that I shouldn't put a single woman in my car by myself and drive her around town looking for a hotel or motel room. And when I related this story to my wife, she had a fit. (laughs) And it's something I try to avoid, believe me. But she was in desperate straits. I got her something to eat. She hadn't had anything to eat that day. So you reach out and you do, you take your chances. These people that are addicted, depressed, aged, troubled, sick, in trouble, are of every age, race, and condition you know what? They have one single unifying characteristic. They, like us, are made in the image of God. Their immortal souls reflect the immortal soul of God. They are God's beloved, and Jesus died for each one of them, just like he died for us. No matter their condition, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must love them. It's what the saints do. So where is Jesus? Many of our evangelical brothers and sisters tell you that he is in our hearts. will tell you that Jesus is present in the sacrament of Holy Communion. I've talked with fellow pastors here in town and at district meetings, conference meetings, and they'll tell you that Jesus is between the covers of a black leather-bound book that they wave about when they speak or preach. But, you know, I'm not really satisfied with those answers. Now, Jesus is found in Holy Communion. Jesus is found in the Holy Bible, of course. He is found in our hearts. But look at today's reading from Matthew's Gospel that Warren read. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, jail, and you visited me. Jesus is living on the streets. Jesus is in the soup kitchen lines. Jesus is at the food pantry or the clothing distribution center. Jesus is waiting at the Salvation Army to get a warm coat for winter. Jesus is in the hospital, or more likely could be sitting inside the hospital and can't afford to be there. So they become a ward of the county. Jesus is in jail, as we saw in the picture. Jesus is living under the bridge or downtown at the canal, sleeping there with a bottle of wine tucked in his coat. I didn't say, say it, Jesus said it. There's no way we can misread what this scripture lesson tells us. Most certainly I tell you inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, wherever people are in need, wherever people suffer, wherever people do without their basic needs, Jesus is there. And he's not just there to comfort those who suffer. Jesus is there suffering along with them just as he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is not in the nave or the sanctuary of this church waiting for Sunday to come so that he can visit with people for an hour or so. And he doesn't hang out at St. Luke's in Indianapolis, the big beautiful church where we went for the ordination and consecration of our new bishop a couple weeks ago. And even as large and beautiful and as expensive as uh, St. Luke's is, he doesn't hang out there, he doesn't hang out here, he's found at Wheeler Mission or Fletcher Place, Hamilton County Jail or Riverview Hospital, Riverwalk Village or at Randall and Roberts with the grieving family. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't present here right now, of course. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that this is not the only place that Jesus is at. It's not the only place where Jesus wants us to find him. He wants us out there in the world every day. Doing the simplest things. Looking to find him in the heartache and pain that surround us. And there's lots of it. Carol and I see it every week. Church is the place where we come to feed and nourish our souls for this work and the work that calls us to minister to him with a capital H in very real and tangible ways. Church is the support and strength we need in order to carry through with our ministry. Jesus is sitting out in the world right now, maybe on a park bench, again, not waiting for any church service to start, but for human contact, for caring, for love, the kind of love our Lord meant when he told us to love our neighbors. To profess the Christian faith means more than to have our theology straight. It means to act on that faith, not knowing what the consequences of our actions will be. I didn't know how this was going to end up last night. When we first went to the Super 8 on 37, they didn't have a room. And the registration clerk told me there's no room to be had in town. Every hotel in Noblesville, Fishers, and Westfield is booked. What do we do now? She says, I didn't call Castleton. People wouldn't wait. In much of life, what makes the difference, what tips the scales, is often something which in itself is very, very small. William Barclay, in his well-known commentaries, especially on the book of Matthew, says this, it is help that is found in the simplest of things. Food, drink, welcoming a stranger, saying hi to someone, clothing, nursing care, visitation, write a care note, write a care note to someone. Give a listening ear like a Stephen minister is trained to do. Taking home communion to someone who can't worship in this church. The caring connection. Taking to meals who are just home from the hospital or suffering in other ways. Calling a new person here by their name. Take the time and effort to learn their name. Paying it forward. Whatever it is, a random act of kindness. You know what you're doing when you do that? Think about it. You're spreading the gospel. This is gospel stuff. You're, you're, you're preaching the word when you do these simple actions. You're a certified and bona fide disciple of Christ. How about that? See? <laughs> An example is found in a good sports story, a true story, in the 1940s. It was Jackie Robinson of the then Brooklyn Dodgers who broke the color barrier in the major leagues. Now, most of you guys probably know that fact. And it was intentional. Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Dodgers, and also he later became uh, commissioner of baseball, was looking for an African-American player with guts enough not to fight back. He found that player in Robinson second baseman. He was ironically not known as a man who ever ducked a fight. Game after game, Robinson stood there on the infield. He stood strong against racist jeers and catcalls. This is the 1940s. First black man to be in Major League Baseball. It was tough out there on the field for Jackie Robinson. One day during a game in Cincinnati, Robinson at second base committed an error. And boy did the jeers start, the catcalls, the racist slurs. Even his own fans who followed him threatened to heckle him and jeer him. You can't imagine. He must have felt very much alone as ugly shouts rang out in that huge stadium and everybody was jeering him. It was then that his teammate and the guy that, lost the vote to be his roommate, Henry Pee Wee Reese walked over to Robinson from his shortstop position and put his arm around his shoulders. The two men stood together facing the crowd. They turned and faced the crowd. Reese didn't say a word. He just stood there with his arm around his shoulders. The jeerings stopped. The taunts stopped. The slurs stopped. And the game continued. A simple gesture, one might say. What matters, though, is that Pee-wee Reese did it as an act of mercy. How simple can it be? And later on, Robinson reported that it was Pee-wee's arm around his shoulder that day that prevented him from quitting baseball that day and saved one of the greatest baseball careers of all time. They're both in the Hall of Fame now. Each of us can consider where we have been and when we have been on the receiving end of mercy, can't we? Whatever that mercy was, somebody changed our flat tire or fixed a computer problem or put up with our procrastination, gave us a metaphorical kick in the pants. These also can be works of mercy that Christ will honor on the last day. Simple things and for which we can be grateful right now. I often told my little congregation in Aroma, you can live your resurrection now. We cannot overstate the significance of this gospel message today. Read it, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It is Christ's final public statement before giving himself up to the cross. It is the climax of the ecclesiastical year. Yeah, there's poetry there. It's beautifully said. Sheeps and goats separating right and left. It's known as a part of the Olivet Discourse, of which there are five parts, called that because it was preached at the Mount of Olives. That's for another day. But the message is straightforward and it's imperative to us. No artful solicitation, no cajoling, no lofty appeal or campaign, no junk mail. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, nurse the sick, write a card, go to someone's home, take communion, visit the imprisoned, the jailed, see Christ and love him in those who need. These are our marching orders in good times and bad. You see, it's what the saints do. Thanks be to God. Amen.